whatever your circumstances, you have a zone of power of something that you can do. Hello, I'm Tarek Omeri, and I'm a learning and development scientist. I welcome my weekly podcast series, Mind the Learning Gap, in which we will be covering what is trending in the world of learning and talent development, solutions, and challenges for education programs and training delivery, in addition to sharing useful tips of good practices in this field. If you are working in learning and development, training, instructional design, or professional development, or are thinking of starting in the field, then this webcast series would be for you. So let's start. and welcome back to Mind the Learning Gap podcast. Today, our guest is someone that I'm extremely excited to introduce and welcome. When I did my PhD at the University of Sheffield in the UK, I got involved in several training programs aimed for postgraduates such as me to enhance cooperation and develop leadership skills for them. Many of these excellent training programs were managed or coordinated by our guest here today. Her mentorship, support, and advice helped me to recognize steps I should take in my own development journey which is why I'm excited she agreed to give us some of her time out of her busy schedule and share with us her experience and work. Dr. Sandrine Soup, a coach and facilitator for researchers and scientists. Dr. Soup, thank you for being here today. Should we start by uh, telling our audience a bit about you and your work? Well, thank you very much for inviting me uh, on your podcast. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure. And it feels very strange in some ways to, uh, to be invited by you um, because we had many conversations when you were a, a PhD student in, in Sheffield. So what about me? Well, I did a PhD as well. Uh, I did my PhD in the US uh, at the National Institute of Health, but I was registered in a, in a French university. And my PhD was on malaria. And after my PhD, I moved to the UK. My husband is, a, is also a biologist and he's the first one who got a position. So he ended up choosing a position at the University of Sheffield, which is how I came to Sheffield. When I moved to Sheffield, nobody uh, in Sheffield was doing work in, on malaria. So I, I changed the, the area of research that I did and I joined the Department of Biomedical Sciences and started working on early patterning in the brain. And I did a postdoc. And at the end of my postdoc, I really had no clue what to do with my life. <laughs> and uh, at the time, there was nobody in the institution really supporting researchers. So I decided to leave. But at the time, I was doing a lot of outreach work and a lot of science communication work during the period of my, my postdoc. And that's really that was really the pivot to getting me to move into things. So I then moved into uh, supporting the the professional development of, of researchers initially in a biology department, which is the place where you did your PhD. And then the program that I initiated expanded. I, I expanded it to the faculty of science and then eventually worked with other researcher developers across the institution. A year and a half ago, I made the decision to leave the University of Sheffield after having worked there for nearly 20 years. So that, that was a very big step. And I decided to leave in some ways because I wanted to experiment again. Having worked in research or development in a single institution for a very long time, I felt that uh, what I had achieved there was up to a certain point, but I wanted to experiment with new ways of working, which is how I became to set up my, my own consultancy. Thank you for sharing that. It's fascinating to hear. 
what made you choose a career in leadership coaching for researchers? Was that something that you recognized the need for in the sector? Well, I would not say that I actually chose to work in this area. I sort of fell into it. And basically, one of the things that happened was that there was a, a review by the government of the, the way researchers were being supported and trained. So there was a very significant report called the, the Roberts Report that's, uh, that was done actually by a, a previous vice chancellor from the University of Sheffield. And basically, it was a way of seeing actually how do we train you know, our researchers? How do we support them in their career? And on the basis of that report, then the UK government invested a huge amount of money in institutions to initiate more training for researchers instead of just having PhD students and postdocs just thrown in the lab and just figuring out how to develop their career. There was money invested and that's how my, my first position was created. And at the time, the, the biology department where you did your PhD, so Department of Molecular Biology and Biotechnology, created a position called a skills coordinator. So the idea of transferable skills coordinator. And what, what was really interesting at the time is that in a way there was this funding, but nobody really knew what, what, was, what we were meant to do with it. So in a way for me, I, was, I joined a position where the academics in the departments gave me a lot of freedom to experiment what, with what was possible. They didn't really know what was meant to happen, what sort of training. And for me, it, was, it, it gave me the autonomy to, to, to experiment. And there wasn't such a term as researcher development. At the time, people really were talking about transferable skills, which in a way I do have a problem with, with the term in itself. But for me, it was, let's see, you know, what is the need? You know, so I did a lot of listening in, of you know, the experiences that researchers were, were having. And also at the time, the consideration of, you know, what, how do we support postdoctoral researchers? There was, there was really nothing to support them. So for me, it was really taking the time to have conversation with, with people. And the crux for me of what I wanted to make happen was I wanted to create space for conversations. I felt that that really what was missing at the time. People were thrown in a, you know, in a research lab, you know, working with an academic. And basically, people had to figure out how to navigate the research environment without really a depth of conversation, where the conversation with the academics will be about the, the, the science, the publication, but not really on how to navigate that space. Also for me, one of the challenge was that I was quite uncomfortable with the idea of transferable skills. And I felt that, you know, there was developing researcher had to go beyond just a consideration of skills. And that's what I've tried to do. Initially, I was quite isolated in my role. I mean, you know, it was just me in a biology department and then working in the faculty of science. But then I, I started working with a colleague who had been recruited to support postdoc in, in the faculty of, of medicine. And we had a lot of conversation and we really built a program that's really expanded. So at some point when the, the Roberts funding came to an end, and basically every year I was applying for funding for my position. 
and, and also for the program that I was delivering. And, and at some point, the, the, this funding disappeared. So the institution had to make a decision decision on, you know, what, what do we do? And we had already established a, a massive program of support. So the university in the end decided that they were going to carry on, you know, supporting uh, our efforts. And also they recruited other trainers to support people in, in other faculties. And then eventually we were able to form a team and, you know, the work as, as a collective, as part of the team we we did a really good job and we managed to get a, a national award the times higher education award for the work that we were doing but initially for me it was very much creating space for conversation and in a way that's what i'm trying to carry on now with, with the work that i'm doing now uh, independently that's very inspiring congrats for the times education award as well i also found it interesting that you said we should look beyond just transferable skills training for researchers. Is it easy for researchers to break the mold of being viewed only as technical experts? And I'm asking this because I know there's this view in academia that scientists should only focus on doing research. And far too often we see supervisors discouraging their students or actively even preventing them from exploring opportunities beyond the lab bench. What are your thoughts on that? So for many, many years, I, I was, you know, I had period where I would be frustrated with some of the academics about, you know, not necessarily supporting their, their, their PhD student or, or postdoc participating in some of the activities that we had. And I kept asking me the question, you know, why, why, why is it? And in a way, they, you know, they, you, people will always give the excuse that, oh, people are really busy, they, you know, there is so much work to do, you know, you just need to focus on the research. Or, you know, for people who are from, ex, you know, experimental uh, sciences, you know, you just need to work in the lab. And I was really puzzled by, by this concept. And actually, it led me to, to start a, a doctorate in education, where I basically started to ask the questions, you know, what does it mean to do research or development, you know? How do people conceptualize what researcher development is about? So I did lots of interviews with academics and with postdoctoral researchers, and, and I, I focused on people in, in the sciences. And what I discovered uh, and the way I started thinking about, you know, what, what's really my role as a researcher developer or what, what do people, you know, when people think about developing as a researcher, what, what does it really mean? In a way, it sort of moved me away from this concept of skills to the concept of, in, in social science, we call a capital. And so for me, it was about acquiring different type of capitals, uh, academic capital, social capital, and in a way, it's about basically, for me, what researcher development is about navigating a space, navigating a social space. And there is a lot of, uh, there are lots of dynamics of power in, in the research environment. And what my research, you know, in this area made me understood was that the resistance that maybe some of the academics have is because in a way, it's about the type of capital that they are prepared to let their, their postdoc or their PhD acquire. So my role as a researcher developer is to enable people to under, understand how to play the game, the academic game, and how to learn to navigate that space where lots of different dynamics and power dynamics exist in order to acquire the capital to position themselves in a space where they are able to take the opportunities that they wish. So for me, shifting from an understanding of researcher development from skills 
to acquiring so, you know, so, a different type of capital and to be able to understand that the dynamics of power in the, in the academic environment really helped me to find ways of, of, of coaching and supporting researchers that I found much more helpful than just the notion of skills. And thank you for sharing that. I also find it interesting that understanding the power dynamics in the workplace, but also you know, people saying that they don't have time for development is something that you not only just here in the private sector, you know, work outside of academia, it's also an issue in academia. So that's comforting to hear. And speaking about work outside of academia, researchers spend years doing their PhD or postdoc, right? But later when they try to break into the private sector, some say that those years they spent is not translated well by prospective employers into work experience. How can scientists prove the case that the time they spent doing research is a real world experience? So for me, and I've, I've done a lot of work with you know, postdocs and, and PhD students on this, it's very much about learning to articulate your competencies. And in a way, it's about learning the language of the potential employers. And for me, I, in a way, there is a great sadness in seeing so many really talented researchers who make the decision to leave academia to feel a sense of, ina you know, of inadequacy in transitioning to other roles. You know, my role you know, as, as a trainer, facilitator and coach is very much in getting people to become much more self-aware of their own power of their own competencies. And, and in a way, often it's about really unpicking experiences that people have had in the research environment and translating it in a way that makes sense for a, an, an employer outside of academia. PhD student postdoc completely undermine their own experiences. And in a way, you know, my, you know, my motivation to help them is that I was exactly in the same position when I left, uh, you know, my, my, my postdoc where I basically, I always say, well, the, on, the only thing that I know is, you know, how to do an in-situ hybridization, or the only thing I, need, I know is, you know, to use, you know, a pipette man. And, and it's like, well, of course, it, it goes beyond that. But in a way, you know, when, when I work with, with researchers, it's really peeling out the layers of the stuff that they've done during their, you know, their studies and making it visible to themselves so that they can make their, their competencies visible to, to employers. And in a way, they, the, the criticism the, that we have in academia, the, in terms of you know, crit, critical thinking, we apply that much too much to ourselves. We're really harsh on ourselves. And in a way, you know, the, for me, the, the joy that I, that I have when I work as a coach is to really help people to, in a way, regain confidence in themselves that they can be very efficient and really impactful professional outside of academia. And I think one way of thinking about it is also to, to consider academia just as any other professional environment. It's got nothing special compared to other, you know, to other professional settings. It's just another place of work and trying to stop that dichotomy between academia and, and other professional environment can really be helpful in, in really easing the path for, for researchers to feel the confidence that they have a role to play outside. And, but for me, the, a, a, an element also that's 
is I think I've, I do a lot of work with in, in my coaching is getting people to also shift their identities. Because when you've worked in academia, you have an identity as a researcher, as somebody who belongs to a specific tribe. And shifting your mindset to believe that you can belong to another tribe, to belong to, you know, to, to have a sense of yourself and your identity to work somewhere else, in a way is really is almost like the, the most challenging part of, you know, the as a coach when I work with somebody, getting people to shift the sense of, of belonging and the sense of self and the sense of identity to really feel that they can belong to another professional tribe. And it takes time, but it's uh, getting people to work on that really is the path of letting them open doors to other professional environment that maybe they would not have considered. And, and you see that in postdocs who, you know, take one postdoc after another, where in a way they're not, they're not giving themselves permission to explore and experiment. They're not giving themselves permission to embody another identity. No, I find this very fascinating and I, I completely agree. I've been in far too many conferences or events with academics or researchers where they don't even have a business card. You know, when someone had me their contact information on a napkin or not even having a LinkedIn profile, because you're right, there's this feeling that they belong to a certain tribe, you know, like the academia tribe, and they not necessarily want to branch out or it's afraid they're not being viewed favorably by academics when they try to branch out. I mean, what, in, something that's interesting is that they, um, now there is a, tons of pressure put on academics. And in a way, I think their role is in some ways pretty unsustainable in terms of the, the demands that are placed on them. And the pandemic certainly is not helping this. But there is, you know, so, you know, they, they are required to do public engagement, to engage with industry, you know, I mean, now they need to do online teaching. So, I mean, the demands are really endless, but in a way, this, this idea of being, you know, an externally facing researcher, I think is very, very powerful. And I used to run a program in Sheffield called the Crucible Program, which was initially developed by, by Nesta, which is the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Art. And the idea of the crucible was to basically bring researchers from lots of different disciplines together over the course of three two-day residential. And the idea was to get people to come together and get out of their disciplinary identity to consider ways of having conversation with people who have different research interests, you know, different methodology, different language when they're talking about their research. And, and as part of that, this idea of the externally facing researcher was also about, you know, how do you engage beyond the walls of the, you know, of your academic department, working, yeah, working with, you know, different stakeholders, industrial stakeholders, you know, charities. Although, they, you know, there is now requirements from the government and the funders for, for academics to do it. I, I really believe that it can really enrich your your professional life as a researcher and i think that for the postdocs who are able to do that as part of that you know during their postdoctoral period it really opens door to actually seeing how you can contribute in other professional settings beyond only working as an academic so I don't know. It's something I'm really passionate about and sometimes maybe too much of an evangelist on it, but um, I really believe in this. I completely agree. And I think this is a timely issue. So let's expand on that a bit because you mentioned the pandemic also for researchers to be able to expand their network and adopt interdisciplinary collaborations and knowledge exchange. 
this this was already a challenge before the pandemic. In your opinion, what impact is uh, COVID-19 right now having on researchers' professional growth and network development when everyone is stuck at home? So I think that it really depends on your personal context. And I think that if you, you know, if you're a parent and you've had to homeschool your kids during the pandemic or, you know, look after teenagers or, you know, even or little kids, whatever, or if you're a single parent, your personal context will have influenced greatly what, what, you know, the outcome for you in the pandemic. But I think that, you know, putting this aside and, and I mean, just to say that I think that women will, you know, they, they will be a need by department to consider, you know, the impact on women. And I know that there are a number of reports now kind of looking at the impact on women of the pandemic in terms of publication and so on. And I think, you know, where my worry is that departments and, you know, funders will not put that I mean, maybe they will put that into a consideration, but maybe not enough. And I think that pressures need to be put on the funders and on the recruiters so that we don't forget about these issues. Because, you know, people are saying that it will, you know, push us backward in terms of, you know, and it also goes in terms of people from a different socio sociocultural background. Depending on your personal circumstances, the pandemic will have really impacted in different ways. But going back of what people can do, for me, it's always about what can you do in the context that you are in and what is your zone of power? And I often use in, in workshop the example of, of my mother because my mom became disabled when she was 27. So she lost the use of her hands and arms when she was 27 and she had two young kids. She was a psychiatric nurse. So what do you do as a psychiatric nurse when you can't work anymore? And basically, she was a very good listener. So she started, she, she worked for the Samaritans. She did lots of listening, but she also set up a charity called the Urgence Suicide Phoenix, and basically creating a space for people who have a, a, a suicide tendency to, um, to be able to come and have conversation. So for me, she was really a role model in terms of whatever your circumstances, you have a zone of power of something that you can do. So in her case, she couldn't, use, she couldn't work anymore because she couldn't, didn't have the use of her hands, but she could still listen. And she used that in, in what she could do. And I think during the pandemic, it's the same. Whatever your context, what can you make happen to create conversation? And for me, really, in a way, my, my purpose, if you want, when, when I try to support people in the research environment, it's always about creating spaces for conversation. So, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, how to build your leadership as, a, you know, as an early career researcher in the middle of a pandemic, well, you can always organize a meeting online. You can always call up somebody and have a conversation. And, and I think that because now everybody is used to, you know, to, to working with Zoom or whatever other platform people are using, I think that actually the, the opportunities to collaborate are even in a, are enhanced compared to what we had before. And in a way, it also brings a, a certain level of equity. Again, you know, if you're a single parent or if you're, you know, a mom who is, you know, with several kids, you may not be able to go to a conference, you know, in San Francisco or, you know, or in Australia. But by having online conferences, give you opportunities to actually meet other researchers from all over the world. 
Uh, and for me, in a way, it's, you know, you know, there are things that we've gained, there are others that we've lost, but what we have is to be proactive in creating these, these opportunities for conversation. When, when I worked at the University of Sheffield, uh, one of the things we were always trying to do was we had pots of funding that we would give researchers to make things happen. So it will be organizing a seminar, organizing a symposium. And in a way that's, you know, in building your leadership as, a, as, as an early career researchers, that's what you can make happen. You can create spaces for your research community to come together, to, to brainstorm new ideas for projects, to, you know, have conversation about things that are going, you know, with, you know, within your own, you know, research work. In a way, it's sort of, it, it has brought a lot of opportunities. And I just want to mention uh, one thing that I did, which was really fabulous. So there was a PhD student from Sheffield who took, had taken part in some of the workshop that, um, that I had done. And she's a, a lady called Lois from Uganda. And she, she is, she's gone back to, to Uganda and she's trying to initiate researcher development in Uganda, which is not something that's really been uh, established. And she's working with other academics, setting up a, net, a network called the NEMRA network. And through LinkedIn, I was in touch with her because she was looking for some mentors from some, some of the, the, the researchers who are part of this uh, NEMRA network. And what was really exciting was that I was able to deliver five workshops to their network through Zoom. So there was a week where basically I was talking to researchers. I think there were about 50 researchers from across Uganda, from across 12 institutions. And we were having a workshop like this. And it's just absolutely fabulous and exciting because again, you know, we would never have had the funding for me to go to Uganda and run a workshop. I mean, the cost implication would have been enormous. And, and Uganda is, you know, is a very, very poor country. So creating a space again for them to come together as academics, it's not, it doesn't really happen. So through the development of these online communities, we can make things happen that could, we couldn't do before. And I think it's, um, I don't know, it brings me a lot of joy and excitement to be able to do things like that. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. And I agree, it's very inspiring. And using the tools you have, the space and what you can do. I'm also recognizing that some researchers might need to be a bit more proactive in it, but certainly doing things online, it may, might open more doors than doors that are, would be closed. Speaking of opening new doors, you, you recently started a new podcast series. Can you tell us a bit about it and what are the key issues you tackle? So my podcast is called the Research Lives and Cultures. It's because I'm really interested in how people navigate their research careers, you know, within academia or outside of academia. And also it's about, for me, the podcast is about giving a space for people to talk about some of the challenges that they find in navigating their research careers to make it visible to others. So in a lot of the workshops that I used to run when we were face to face, I will always invite people to come and talk about, you know, how they, they've navigated the choice that they have made. Because often we, you know, one of the, the, the things that we tend to do is we, we like to compare ourselves to others. And it's, it's really not necessarily very helpful. And there is a, a trainer, a US, uh, an American trainer who, who used that term of stay in your own lane. 
And I really like that term because staying in your own lane is about saying, well, you know, my experience is, is just mine and my path into the position that I have or into the position that I'm created is based on all the experiences that I have before. So what's the point in comparing myself to others? But at the same time, I think that listening to the stories of others can really inspire us to give some ideas of how to navigate the space. And because, as I said earlier, for me, it's not about skills, it's really about learning to play the game, but learning to play the game on our own terms. And I think it's something that I've learned because for me, you know, when I went to the US for my PhD, nobody had done it before for my university. I was registered in a French university. There wasn't really even a mechanism to get a visa in a very straightforward manner. So for me, the way I've navigated my path has very much been about following my intuition, you know, creating space of joy of what, you know, what gives me joy in, in the way I engage with others. So I think that for the podcast, it's really, you know, hearing stories and giving people a sense that they can find their own path that nobody else has followed, but giving them the strength to just have a go at, at experimenting with things. Thank you for sharing that. Plotting our own path, but at the same time, benefiting from others' experience, but still not comparing our progress to others. Completely agree. We will link the podcast to the description for this episode. As we reach the end of the episode, uh, can you tell us about your consultancy business and how can people follow your work or maybe contact you? What's interesting is that, you know, setting up a, a business is uh, in a way probably a little bit scary. But for me, it's again, it's, I feel it's just another experiment. And uh, over the last year, I've reached out to lots of different business owners. And what I found really interesting is that in a way, it's about saying, OK, well, that's my starting point. And I don't really know where, where, where it will lead. And I'm just playing around, experimenting, having conversations. So for me, having spent many, many years focusing my work with PhD student and postdoc, what I wanted to do was shift towards working more with academics and new, new research leaders. Because I feel that their journey into getting their first fellowship or their first lectureship they, they've suffered to get there and they've worked very hard. And in a way, learning to become a really an empowering leader is really hard. So what I'm interested in work is in working with uh, new PIs and new academics to help them to become, you know, the leaders that they want to be, but to become leaders, creating a, a, an environment where others can thrive. That, that's really my mission in a, in a way. And so what I want is to work, you know, one-to-one -one with, uh, you know, through coaching with, with new, new research leaders to give them a space to reflect because that's something we don't really tend to do in academia. And often you, you may have, you know, a, a very fancy leadership program that people may be able to attend or not, but then you're missing the space to reflect on, on, on your practices. And also they, when people are setting up a research group, they don't necessarily take the time to really think about the dynamic of interaction within their research group. So I'm interested in working with, with uh, PIs, principal investigators and academics who really, I, I always say, are daring enough to want to create conversation and better conversation in the research environment. So 
you know, and, and also for research networks. So often, you know, research networks are set up through different funding scheme and, you know, they may focus the conversation on, on the scientific element, but actually the way we work together in this research network, having somebody who facilitate conversation to set up the right mode of interaction, I think is really important. So I've, uh, people can contact me through LinkedIn. I have a website that I'm finalizing and uh, it, it ought to have been done a long time ago. But again, because I was experimenting in the way I am framing what I want to offer, it's not quite finished yet, but uh, it will soon be. So people can just contact me through LinkedIn. And I'm really interested in working with, with uh, teams, you know, over, all over the world since now with, you know, with the virtual delivery, we can, um, we can create conversation with people from all over the world. So yesterday I was running a workshop for an ITN program, which is a European consortium of PhD students. And these researchers were in 15 different countries and we were coming together for this workshop. So it's really, I found that really inspiring and exciting. Thank you, I agree. The possibilities are endless with the online opportunities. Thank you for that, Dr. Sue. And thank you for joining us here today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. We have now reached the end of this episode of Mind Learning Up podcast. Thank you for listening and being with us. To hear more episodes in the upcoming weeks, please rate and subscribe to this podcast series. This was Tarek, the Learning Scientist. Have a good week and see you in the next episode.